number of copies. We've given out about 40 or 50 so far. Uh, I really can't recommend this highly enough. R.C. Sproul two-pack message. What's so really helpful about this is without being rude, without being um, pejorative, he, in one message, just lays out a Roman Catholic understanding of justification. Um, and, and it's much more complex than you think. It's much more involved than you think. And, and he, he studied it, he understands it. And then, as, by way of contrast, in the second message, he lays out a Protestant understanding of justification and forgiveness. And I think as a match, pair, it's really helpful. I've shown it to Roman Catholic friends before. You know, I can say, tell them, look, I can attest to you that Sproul does a bang-up job representing the Protestant view, but you know, can you verify he's doing a fair job representing the Catholic view? And then they snatch it out of my hands, and let me see that. And it really helps make that contrast clear. And, and also, in case you think, well, that was a disagreement they had 500 years ago, but today, they're, they're pretty much resolved. I, I don't, don't think so. The other thing that we have back there, only a few copies left, um, Luther's 95 Theses, which are just a very interesting historical document. Um, and uh, you, if you've never read them, I think it'd be profitable to do so. We've got some copies back there. But anyway, we've got about 10 or 15 more of these R.C. Sproul um, packets, and we've given them about 40 or 50 out. So they're back there if you want them. That said, questions, thoughts on Solus Christus or any of the previous Solas? Wanda Cowan. We need a micro. Oh, we got, where's our microphone people? Hold on. Um, I need somebody to do. Naomi, would you be so kind? There's a microphone right there. Right there. And can I get a second volunteer? So we usually have two microphone people. Anybody else want to volunteer? Jonah, you got the. Can we get Jonah set up with another microphone? So, Wanda Cowan. Jonah, you're going to go back to the sound booth. Oh, there's a microphone right there. You're, you're good. Okay. Wanda. Well, I know you addressed this, Hebrews 5 1, but I. And you probably answered the question, and I just didn't catch it. But I think you were saying, and what I took from it is, 5.1 in Hebrews, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, um, and then how he does it for himself as well. So that's probably what the Catholics use to justify the priest absolving you of your sin through the Eucharist, correct? Right. So how do you, so is this, was your point in, so when I look at that, does that mean that's how it used to be? The, no, the answer, would, the answer would be, that's what high priests do. And you and I are priests, we're not high priests. So the, does the Catholic priest consider himself a high priest? Yes, and they're, and they're because of their understanding, they, they deny the universal priesthood of believers. So they break the body of Christ into lay, sacred secular. You've got the lay people, and you've got the clergy. And one of their seven sacraments is holy orders. And so by holy orders, you then are conferred with the authority of Christ. And so the priest, let me, let me read the quote here. Um, and this is, this is all stuff you can verify and check. I, I, this isn't meant to in any way. I want to put them in their own words. Um, here we go. Okay. The minister, by reason of the sacerdotal consecration, by the, the rite that is performed, that... that conveys him this authority, is truly made like the high priest and possesses the authority to act in the power and place and person of Christ. So they take, when, when Jesus tells Peter, I'm giving the keys to you, they view that as Jesus transferring his full authority, 
for Peter, the first leader of the church, to exercise. So they, they, they make a big deal out of that, that Peter was getting, so then they want to track papal secession from Peter, who they view to be the first pope, who was married, by the way. Um, he has a mother-in-law in Luke. Um, and so he gave Peter the keys. And he tells um, the, the church that what they bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, what they loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And so by virtue of that, they say, see, Christ gave the church leadership, the, the, the vicar of Rome in particular, the right to um, loose and bind, lock and remit sins, forgive sins. And, and so Jesus gave it, and so we're acting in his stead on earth as his representatives, and Jesus can delegate his authority if he wants to, and he has, and so we are doing that on his behalf. And that's what they believe they're doing in their priesthood. And so what I'm arguing this morning is we are priests. We are not high priests. And that that is unique to Christ. That Christ... And so to, and to argue it's ongoing is really challenging to that. Like, I, we, I understand, what I'd say to your friends, I understand from my reading of Hebrews this, that one of the precise ways in which Christ's sacrifice differs from the Levitical sacrifice is its once for all and it's its completion. It isn't being repeated. I mean, look, look at how clearly this is in, in, in um, 9.25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. I mean, he didn't intend to offer himself repeatedly. As the, um, nor was it to, to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest went to the holy place every year, the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That is precisely what Rome says is taking place in the Mass. Christ is present, sacrificed, suffering. It's a real sacrifice, really accomplishing things. It is a, their language, it's a bloodless sacrifice. Um, so... That's precisely the point I see the author of Hebrews going after in contrasting the Jewish temple system and Christ's sacrifice. So you could talk to her, ask questions about that, try to tease that out some. That, that's, that'd be my thoughts or suggestion. But yeah, they're gonna, the biggest things they're going to make a case out of are I give you the keys, the end of John, um, whoever sins you forgive. And, and, and there, the grammar um, comes into play. What, what is... What is literally being said is not that, and this is the key, to, the key point, it's not that God responds to our judgments. Oh, they have forgiven somebody, I will forgive somebody. They have tied someone's sins to them, I will do that. Which is Rome's view, which is why in Roman Catholicism, when they determine someone's a saint, or when somebody who was good, they dig up their bones and burn their ashes and scatter them, like they've done, in their understanding, people literally are going from hell to heaven, purgatory to heaven, heaven to hell. So like um, Joan of Arc is initially denounced as a heretic, and so she's sent to hell. And when later they made Joan of Arc into a saint, in Roman theology, Joan of Arc goes from hell to heaven in real time and in real space, really, because they were given the keys and God said he would respect and honor their judgments. So when they judged her a heretic, she was sent to hell. When they judged her a saint, she went to heaven. That's their understanding, and it follows from their understanding of the keys. Our understanding, and this comes from the grammar, is that our judgments are meant to reflect God's judgments. His are the ones that matter. Ours are meant to reflect it. So um, in the right hand of fellowship, which Paul talks about in, in Galatians, or in church membership, we welcome someone based on the profession of faith, based upon their following of Christ, and we recognize them as brothers and sisters. And our judgment there is meant to hopefully reflect God's judgment. You're part of the family. We'll treat you like the family. Church discipline is meant to reflect what we believe. is to, We believe you have broken your fellowship with God, 
and you aren't listening to us, and so we are going to reflect what we think is going on on earth, but we could be wrong, right? We aren't claiming that our judgments are final and authoritative. Rome is. Rome is, and it's because they under, their understanding of what it means for Christ to give the keys, they would say to Peter, um, and what the rock is there, and we could, we could dive into that, but that's, that's a fundamental difference. All of our judgments are tentative, or they're not final. Just because we say someone's a Christian, just because we welcome them in, doesn't mean they couldn't ultimately prove to not be a believer. And just because we, if we were to you know, do censure discipline to somebody, doesn't guarantee they're not a believer. It just means to us, the best as we can figure out, you're, you're, you're walking like a duck, you're quacking like a duck, we, we think you're a duck. We'd love to be proven wrong, right? Uh, so our judgments are not final or absolute, but they are meant to reflect heaven. Rome's got it exactly backwards on that point. Um, and it's, once you buy their premise, it's consistent, which is why if you buy the premise that the Eucharist really is the physical, corporeal body of Christ, why wouldn't you adore it and worship it? This is God in, in, in cracker form. Um, it makes sense. No, I'm not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be pejorative, but they, they truly believe this is God. The God of the universe is on this silver plate. Um, yeah, of course, if he was, you should worship that. Um, but but when, you, when you see them played out logically, you get to see some of the absurdity of it. We've got webcams so that you can at any day of the hour view and venerate it. Pope John Paul II said that there is nothing better for the advancing of holiness and spiritual life than the, the worship and adoration of the Eucharist. Like, you could do nothing better to further your spiritual growth than to go to visit that webcam or go to a thing and, and, and venerate the, the consecrated Eucharist. Um, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. Ron! Ron Ludwig. Um, when you talk about the priesthood, it, it's based upon... Matthew 16, verse 18, and it says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so that's what we were taught as Catholics is the direct line, and that's why the priests have all that authority. Right. Absolutely. What, What makes it less likely that that the keys are given to Peter as opposed to that confession is that in Matthew 18, when you get to the passage on church discipline, um, go, go there real fast. I'll show you. This is why one of the arguments for why I don't think that that, you know, obviously we don't agree with that position, but why don't we agree with that position? Go to Matthew 18. You've heard me say that no individual Christian has the authority or the right to discipline anybody. Um, let, me, let me show you why I say that. Um, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell it to him. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you. Now, the you there is plural. Let him be to you all, which I think the context makes clear. You tell it to the church, and it's the church, plural, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For truly I say to you, and it's all. This is where English, we no longer use, I mean, South, you can say y'all. But it's clear. Let him, for truly I say to you all, whatever you all bind on earth shall, and again, really the, the grammar is shall have been bound in heaven. Um, 
It's one of those verses where actually a really woodenly literal translation would be helpful because it makes it clear this binding and loosing is not given to an individual like Peter, it's given to the church, and that it's not that heaven responds, because who's responding to who? Who's reflecting who? Whose initiative is this? Well, the ESV, you could read it, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Could, you could read that to mean, okay, then heaven responds. Oh, you've bound it on earth, I'll bind it in heaven. Oh, you've loosed it on earth, I'll loose it in heaven. Now, the grammar could go either way. The Greek's much clearer, shall have been bound in heaven. It's a perfect verb tense. So what's critical here is who's imitating who, who's reflecting who, whose judgments are primary, whose judgments are derivative. And this is exactly the point we would disagree on. You know, and you know, we can open the text and reason through. We can disagree agreeably. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we have to be jerks to each other. But this, that would be a crucial point of disagreement. Um, okay. Next. Yes, Marianne. Okay. So one of my understandings with the Eucharist as well was that's why you see, like when you've been, if you've been to a Catholic wedding or something like that, when they do um, communion at it, that they tap all the crumbs from the bread into the wine, the cup of wine or whatever, and then mm-hmm. that's when the priest kind of chugs the rest of it. Yes. Right. Well, I'm, no, they actually That's my have, interpretation. No, 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 no. That's what, no, absolutely. They got to make sure. No, I mean, you think it through. If, once you buy the premise of transubstantiation, mm-hmm. that this bread has literally become the body, the flesh of Jesus Christ. How dare we throw crumbs of it away? Literally, they sat down. There's canon law. What do you do, in fact? Like, here's a question that, that Roman theologians have sat down and given us an answer to. It's, not, it's a question we have an answer to. What happens if a rat were to eat a crumb of the consecrated host? You can't kill the rat. They, they, they've sorted that one out precisely because of that. Um, and they, they, the other thing that was big in the Reformation that Luther insisted on with the other guys, they wouldn't allow the laity to partake of the cup. So the, only the priest would drink and eat. Everyone else just ate. And so uh, that was another big shift. They're saying, no, you're, you're making this distinction between the... One of the things they're pressing for is there is no sacred-secular dichotomy. There's the sacred Christians and the non-sacred Christians. There's sacred work and there's non-sacred work. You know, Luther and... And the reformers insisted that the, the work of the plowboy done to the glory of God was just as holy and just as serviceable and just as righteous as the work of, 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 of a pastor or priest because everything is God's and everything is to be done to his glory. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, right? So, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, again, you're going to be going off on it, but absolutely, that's why, because, I mean, they get the implications of that enormous premise that this is the body of Christ, <laughs> And so then they're going to treat it with that reverence. You can't fault them for being consistent. You just got to question the premise. Right. But once you buy the premise, okay, this is physically God. Then, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised that they have a... Um, I did learn this morning. I did not know before this morning about the um, monstrance, the box for viewing. It makes perfect sense, though. You know, I mean, if I'd want to look at it if it were really Jesus. You know, um, I, I, I can't blame him for that. It just, when you see the implications of it as it plays out, you, wow. Not only is this odd, it's very different from what we're doing. Um, so absolutely, absolutely. 
Al and I were just talking. We thought it was interesting, though, that, you know, in the New Testament, when you're looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the different accounts of how the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and all that were upset with Christ because of him claiming to be the Son of God. Uh-huh. And yet, in writing, that's pretty much what they have there. It's like, wow. Yeah, they uh, <laughs> kind of tables turned. Yeah, no, they they are claiming to act for him, and I mean, the Pope claims the title Vicar of Christ. I mean, you don't get any more clear than that. I'm Jesus' representative on earth, and what I say goes. Now, there is Old Testament precedent for that, in the extent that David and the the Davidic kings, when they're anointed, become God's spokesperson on earth. I mean, we had the the line of the prophet Moses is speaking for God. What 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 I was trying to say at the beginning of Hebrews. Is, I mean, go to Hebrews 1. All, all the point of Hebrews, again, is this culmination in Christ. It, it, it finds its culmination in him. It doesn't continue on in the next guy. So Hebrews 1 reads, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, and he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the final revelation and word. He is, he is the final one who comes speaking for God, representing. And this doesn't get passed on to the next guy in line. This is unique to his office and to his function. His priesthood doesn't come to an end. He doesn't pass that priesthood on to somebody else. He's the high priest where the priests under him. He doesn't say, okay, you can be high priest. Like that, those are the discussions we need to have are about those types of things where we would, where we would disagree. But, yeah, uh, Wanda. I don't mean to be disrespectful to the Catholic faith, but, okay, so the video's on it. Does it ever show somebody coming in and opening a bag and dumping the little wafers out? I mean, no. do they say the priest then goes hocus-pocus? I mean, I really don't mean to be disrespectful, but no. I'm... No. Is that kind let of what me, it so is? Let, no, let, me, let me explain. Let me explain. The host, the reason they call it the host, is prior to its consecration, it is not the body of Christ. It will receive and contain the body of Christ. That's what the term host comes from. And so prior to the priest praying over it and um, d- doing the, 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 the rite over it, it's just a piece of bread. Just, just... So what you have in the box would be a consecrated host, which has now become the Eucharist, and you wouldn't need to keep replacing it. I mean, I, I suppose they might, but it could, it could stay there for a couple of days, I'm sure, and it would remain the body of Christ in their view. So no, you wouldn't need to keep swapping it out once, once it's been prayed over. Um, you mentioned the, the hocus pocus. That's, this was one of the most... If, you've, if you haven't heard... This will make more sense if you've heard the R.C. Sproul thing. Um, but uh, one of the early Catholic challenging debates was the question of where does the legitimacy of a right come from? Specifically, the question was if you were baptized, um, baptized as an infant or baptized as a believer, and the person who baptized you later fell away from the faith, do you need to get rebaptized? That was the, the, really the first instance was in persecution. If the person who baptized you later recanted, they later denied Christ, is your baptism valid? If you were made a bishop or a pastor and the person who, who, laid hands on you, later denied the faith, are you still a bishop? So th- th- this is a real question. And they, uh, there's three answers you can give to that question. One, the legitimacy of the right is in the one who does it. The legitimacy of the right is in performing the right accurately. 
or the legitimacy of the right is found in the sincerity of the one receiving it. Um, Rome's answer they got from Augustine is the legitimacy of the right is in the performance of the right. So if you've listened to Sproul, it's that phrase, ex operatus operatus, through the working of the work. So as long as, so basically the question is, my baptism valid? The person who baptized me is an arch heretic now. Did he baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son? Did he use the Trinitarian formula? Did he baptize you properly? If he did, it's good. Which is why, um, which is why, even today, in like Presbyterian churches and stuff, baptism done, this is some holdovers in Presbyterian circles from Catholicism, why if you were baptized in the Roman Catholic Church as an infant, most Presbyterian churches will accept that. Because even though they may not accept Rome as a valid church, they would accept that Rome does infant baptism correctly. And so they would, they would bring that across. So their answer is through the working of the work. Now we would say, I would say, it's in, the, it's in the person doing it. So if you were baptized as a Christian and you don't think you came to faith so much later, I'd encourage you to get rebaptized, Because when you received that sign, when that rite was done, it did not accurately represent what was going on in you. You're doing baptism to indicate, I've been immersed in the Spirit. I've been put into Christ. And when you gave that sign to give that testimony, no, you hadn't. So I'd just like, if you put a wedding ring on years before you got married, I'd suggest you might want to put a new wedding ring on you know, as a sign of your covenant, now that you are, in fact, married. But that, that's a whole other discussion. But Rome's answer, coming from, from Augustine, is that it works with the working of the work. And he pressed that out logically. What that means, then, ultimately, is I don't have to have any idea what I'm doing or saying for it to work. And so at the height of the medieval period, when simony is at its height, which is, uh, simony is named after Simon the sorcerer in Acts, who tries to buy the Holy Spirit. So the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices is called simony. As people are buying positions. And if you're a noble lord, your first son inherits, you don't want the second son to fight him. So what do you do? You buy him a bishopric. You, 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 make him, you buy him a, a position in the church. At least in the Middle Ages, this was going on. Um, and so you've got people in these high positions at church office who are bone ignorant. And they don't speak Latin, and everything's in Latin. Rome says not to worry. As long as you say it properly, it's good, right? So the, what's the height of the mass where the, where the host becomes the body of Christ, when the priest says, Horus S. Corpus. I got this from a, a biography of Tyndale, and it was so, I didn't believe it. I, I was like, that sounds like one of those preaching legends. You know what I mean? I tracked it up. It actually holds up as best as we can tell. But basically, what you had is priests who didn't know what they were saying, stumbling over it, calling it hocus pocus. That's where the phrase hocus pocus comes from was ignorant priests who had no idea what they were saying in Latin, but under Rome's theology, it doesn't matter if they know what they're saying in Latin, as long as they say it, as long as it's done properly. It works through the working of the work. And what we're looking at is simply a more extreme example of how that, if that's true, this was form reductum ad certum, if that premise is true, then they're absolutely right. It doesn't matter if the person knows what they're doing at all. Again, it comes back to the foundational premise. It's, it's not, here's an example of it in this extreme form, but if the premise is true, that's fine. You know, I, I would challenge that Augustine's answer to that is, is not, you know, a good one. But, you know, that's... Yes, Linda. You kind of addressed um, what I was going to say previously about, okay, so where do they get these wafers from? I mean, they're just, you know, ordering them hmm. from somewhere, I'm guessing. Like, you know, 
They're made somewhere. Sure, and they, okay. but they would say that Jesus, the bread that Jesus picked up in the Last Supper was just com- prior to Jesus consecrating it. It was just common everyday table bread. Nothing particularly special about it. But when Jesus picked it up and said, this is my body, now he has conferred upon it. Now, what's interesting to me, I, I, I'm sure there's an answer. So I'm, this isn't meant to be like an aha. But I'm curious how Rome understands it when Jesus institute the Lord's Supper before he's dead, is it his, like he hasn't died on the cross yet, so for the disciples eating that meal, do they view that bread as his body, even as his body's inches and feet away? I don't know. It's a question I'd love to, you know, that's not, again. But if you take that, that literally, this is my body, we would agree if Jesus wanted to, he could say this is his body and do something special to the bread, right? We don't think he did, but as God, he could. They would just say, sure, it's an everyday common bread. But Jesus confers this, this um, holiness to it. Jesus, um, by virtue of his, his power and his might, he uh, makes this miracle happen. So they, they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course it's just bread built, made in a factory or baked by hands. Absolutely. Right. It, isn't but, it amazing what Jesus does through his grace, his power? But then... After I thought that through, it's like, okay. So now they're saying that the priest has the power to create life, basically, because they're saying that what they're saying, the words they're saying, are now making this piece of bread into Christ's body. So, I mean, they're effectually saying they're creating Christ. No, no, they would, that's, that's going a step too far. They're, they're very clear even as their priests are doing these things, even as their priests are forgiving sins, they are doing it on behalf of Christ. They're doing it like an ambassador. So I could send, the United States could send an ambassador to another country who could bind us in a peace treaty, legally, our country, as they represent us. They would say Christ is in heaven and he has authorized the church and its bishops and priests to speak for him. So when the priest says your sins are forgiven, he's not saying based on my own authority. He's saying I'm representing Jesus and Jesus told me to tell you your sins are forgiven. And so I'm speaking for Jesus. And they would be very clear on that fact. The priest is not in in his own right forgiving anybody. The priest is acting in the stead of Christ. And they, they're very clear on that. So they get, I mean, I was reading Catholic Answers because, you know, they, they you know, I spent a bunch of time reading Catholic Answers. I don't want to misrepresent Roman Catholicism. Um, they get that no one but God can forgive sins. They understand what took place in Luke 5 when, when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who is this who forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. We're not forgiving sins in our own right. We are representing Christ. Christ said, I can't be there physically. You go do it for me. That, that's what they're saying. And in the same way, the priests aren't making the bread into the body of Christ. Jesus says, when you do this, I'll do it. You, you, you say this, and then I'll zap it and make it happen. That's their understanding. So they would not claim the priest has any inherent power, the priest has any inherent supernatural ability to do anything, but rather by virtue of the keys. It all comes back to the keys. I'll let you run. Here are the keys to my shop. Run my shop for me. By virtue of that, they're acting in Christ's stead. So everything they do, they do with his authority. And everything they do, they do with his power. But if you follow the cord back to the wall, it'd be Jesus' power and Jesus' authority at work, not theirs. They would say. So I, I get what you're saying, but I don't want to go further than, they're clear on that point. They would be, insist the priest is not doing anything other than exercising Jesus' power and authority on his behalf. 
and with his um, blessing, with his permission. He has delegated that authority. So if I tell my daughter to go tell my son to come in, she can say, you know, Zadik, come inside. Daddy wants you. She's operating under my authority. She has no authority to tell Zadik to come inside. I've transferred some temporary authority to her. She's speaking on my behalf. She's representing me. And she can tell my son to come inside. They would just say that's what they're doing. Okay? Naomi. I just have a question um, about, um, I have a friend who is non-denominational, and I was wondering, are non-denominational, is that grouping, that denomination in a sense, is that Protestant technically? Yes, yes. Um, So basically, there's different understandings of church governance. So Rome's got the biggest one. The whole, the Catholic in Catholic means universal. And so they are trying to hold on to something which is good. I mean, what we see in the New Testament is a Catholic church, a church that's in communion with itself, so that Paul's sending people from one church to another. The churches know each other, they, they interact with each other, and they represent the apostles uniformly, right? They each have, Paul leaves Titus behind in, in Crete to appoint elders in every church. So each church has its own leadership, but above that, they're the apostles, right? Um, and so... The Catholic Church is trying to keep that unity. Good for them. That's a worthy goal. Jesus prays in John 17 that we'd be one. Um, and so, in fact, some of the, some of the things that have crept in kept crept in to keep that unity. I mean, that's how penance came in in the, in the uh, fourth century so that the people who denied Christ, there wouldn't be a split in the church. Anyway, so then you've got denominations would be views of, of groups of churches that um, either because, so in the Presbyterian system, they would view an office, an earthly office, above pastor and elder called the presbyter. And so in the Presbyterian understanding of church governance, there are local bodies led by elders, but above them is the presbytery. Okay? And so our understanding, the E-free, like our E-free denomination, the free is our statement in the name, we recognize no earthly authority above the local church. There is no position that we see in Scripture above pastor, elder. Um, obviously, if there were an apostle walking around, that'd be a different story. There are no more apostles alive on earth. Um, and so we don't recognize, so we're an association more than anything. Um, so there's, and that people do that for various reasons and for various benefits. We joined the E-Free denomination primarily for help in doing our church plants. We, we, we didn't know how that worked. They gave a lot of help for that. Um, so we're not part of the E-Free church in that the E-Free denomination, um, governs us. And the most the E-Free church could do is ask us to leave. Other churches don't even need that, and that's fine too. Bible churches, independent Bible churches, they're not part of a denomination. All that means is we are purely autonomous. We, I mean, and we are largely autonomous. I mean, the free and e-free recognizes that, but we're saying, hey, you know, we got this fellowship. Um, so denominations are more those types of things. But yeah, they're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a Christian, so, someone calling yourself a Christian, and you're not Catholic, you are in some sense a Protestant or, or flowing out of the Protestant Reformation, um, or you're Mormon. Or a Jehovah Witness, but I think even but the Mormons today more and more are trying to call themselves a Protestant denomination. That there's a big push um, of rebranding themselves as Protestant. It took me probably half the last time I talked to a Mormon. I think it took me half an hour, maybe 20 minutes, to actually get us to agree that we disagreed on anything, because they were co-opting the terminology so much. Oh yeah, we believe that. I'm like, really? Are you sure? 
Like, <laughs> I didn't think we did. Okay, I mean, cool. It's good, good to know. So you believe Jesus is eternal. Yes, he's, so he never had a beginning point. Well, I wouldn't say that. Okay, so we mean different things when we say eternal. I mean, again, you don't need to be, you don't need to be disagreeable to identify disagreement, but there's a big push in, in uh, Mormonism to, to brand themselves as just another denomination. I don't think the Jehovah Witnesses are, are doing that, but the Mormons are. So, yeah. Serena in the back. Oh, you and my friend tried to tell me that she wasn't Protestant, and I was like, "Are you sure? Because it sounds like you kind of Protestant." (laughs) Well, well, the the problem is most Christians are so ignorant of church history that she doesn't. She probably hears you saying she's part of the denomination. If you were to say something like, "You're an heir of," you are a child of the Protestant Reformation. In other words, you are standing in the tradition of those who broke away from Rome, who don't rec- you don't recognize the Pope as the head of Christ, the church, no. You don't believe that there's no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church, no. You believe that Christians can read the Bible for themselves, you're, you're a Protestant. You just, <laughs> you, know, you just don't know you are. That's fine. Um, it, it's, it's, it all, she probably hears you say that she's part of some organization, and that's why she probably denies it. So, yeah. Okay. Trying so, to like, tell her that... Is Serena still in the back? Where'd she go? She raised her hand and then she bolted. Yeah, I tried to tell her, like, happy Reformation Day. And she was like, no, I'm not a Protestant. And I was like, <laughs> I, I think you might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not Catholic, right? Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, Dean. Looking around, it looks like there's only about two or three or four of us that remember this, but... In 80, 1980, when we came here, we were not part of a denomination yeah. and only became part of the E-Free Church when Joel was nearing retirement and wanted some extra support. Yeah. So this was a non-denominational church. And, and right now, even, we have friendships with churches who aren't part of the E-Free. The E-Free denomination isn't so tight that those are the only people we talk to. Um, Pastor Daniel and I get together with, uh, with pastors from uh, Grace in Indianola. Dr. Revan lunch them on Tuesday. Redeemer, which is part of the uh, Engage Network, which is really grandchild of a Garb Church, um, and Earlham um, Crossroad Church. We know the pastor that we get together sometimes with me. So we, we're in fellowship with pastors in the area across denominational lines. Aloe Strainer wants to talk though next. Oh, microphone. Oh. I I think. You, you probably all know this, but we might be mixing terminology a little bit, and I think you alluded to that, but we, the E-Free is not a denomination. Mm. It is an association. That's, that's what I was saying. Yeah. It's more of an association. And, and so yeah. um, association strictly means you agree to certain you know, fundamentals, and that's about it. And uh, whereas a denomination, then there's hierarchy. You're dictated. Right. You have a lot of things that you yeah. must do, and, and you... Know, keep track of, and obviously right. you mentioned the autonomous part of it, but uh, right. uh, so the, you know it's a very loose. You know we can depart from the association at any time if right. we decided to, and there's some in this church that would like to do that. <laughs> and uh, but there are benefits and negatives yeah. both ways. So yep. Yeah, one of the things that's really tough in the denominations, the hierarchy structure, is that I think in the PCA, the PCA owns the church building. So there's been a lot of fights. I, I want to say it's the PCA. If Zebra here, you'd be able to back me up on this. But it's one of the denominations. I want to say it's the PCA, um, where as the churches go conservative, the 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 organization grabs the building <laughs> and says, "Well, we own your property. We own everything. So get out." 
And we are completely autonomous in that sense. No one outside of ourselves decides our leadership. No one outside of ourselves owns our property. I mean, no, no earthly person outside of ourselves. We are autonomous in that sense, absolutely. And so we, we, we joined for benefit, and the E-Free is more of an, is an association where churches try to help each other, strengthen each other, but there's no higher, or, or higher uh, authority structure in place. Absolutely. That's good to be clear on. Okay, Dean again. Just a question. Am I the only one that had to look up what sacerdotal meant? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and really, I tried not to use this too much. I probably should have brought it out more in the grace system. The sacer- sacerdotal is um, basic. If I could tell me if this fits your definition you looked up, it's through rites, mechanisms, and ritual. Um, Performing and, and transferring and accomplishing spiritual work in reality. Something like that? What'd you get when you looked it up? That's my. Webster just said, of or pertaining to a priest or priesthood. Oh, okay. The entire sacerdotal system in Rome's view is the seven, they got seven um, sacraments. And what they all are are rites, they're, they're procedures, things that you do, whether it's last rites, whether it's sacred orders, whether it's marriage, whether it's the Eucharist, whether it's penance, they're all things performed and accomplished. And in the accomplishment of them, spiritual realities take place. So in the doing of the Mass, sins are atoned for. In the um, giving of penance, guilt is removed. Spiritual realities are taking place through these mechanisms. Turn out, turn down to be a mechanism by which grace is administered. You literally turn the crank, and out comes grace, out comes salvation. We just do it, um, which is why Rome was so heavily centered around the mass. I mean, during the Middle Ages, the Pope brought European countries to their knees, kings to their knees, by shutting off the mass. Fine, you won't, you you won't do this thing we want you to do. We are turning off the mass. The priests, our priests, are no longer allowed to give mass in, say, France. You have the peasants absolutely in arms, revolting, because in their understanding, without I continually need, uh, again, back to the Hebrews, the whole difference, Christ's sacrifice, you don't need to keep coming back for more. But I need to keep taking mass and the Eucharist if I'm going to stay saved, if I'm going to go to heaven. And if you shut that spigot off, I'm damned. And so because they've got this mechanism or machinery which pours out grace and salvation, which is what I was trying to say is different from salvation by grace alone. Grace is God freely giving something, not a machine where we turn the crank and out comes. Because you can't obligate God to give grace. Um, And yet through the sacramental system, God is precisely obligated to give grace. If you do the right properly, he will give you the grace. You must. So that's, yeah, sacerdotal is that whole mechanism of rites and ritual and um, observances, which, even though they're physical, transfer or, or accomplish spiritual saving reality. Um, so yeah, that's this whole sacerdotal system. Sorry for using a $5 word. Fair enough. Uh, I've tried to keep some of the... Now, Sproul will use it all. If you listen to Sproul, he'll walk you right through. You get congruent merit and you know, condign merit and all that stuff. But I've tried to keep most of that out. But, okay. Five minutes. Yes, Ron again. One thing you touched upon that is really a big issue with Catholics, you mentioned about um, 
praying to Mary or an intercessory or whatever you want to term. Right. And that's why they have all these um, saints that you can pray to. Right. If you lose a quarter, they have a saint of the quarter. Um, and I can say that being a former Catholic. But, um, and that's why Catholics name their children after saints. For example, my mother's name was Agnes, but I don't think there's a Saint Agnes, so they, her middle name is Shirley, and so she went by that name. So mm. it's, it's a really a big deal for Catholics to, that believe that. Well, and Agnes is Latin for lamb, I think. Agnes, I don't think there's a Saint Agnes, I don't know. No, no, it's, but it's Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. So I'm guessing she was named after that. I mean, that's where the name came from. Um, no, Be, well, and this is again one of those things that's slippery because you can ask living Christians to pray for you, and James tells us the prayers are pray for each other, confess your sins to one another. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man like you and I, and, and he prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. So it is absolutely a good thing to enlist other believers to pray for you. There is not a single scriptural indication that anyone who's dead and in heaven is aware of what you're asking or would or ever has interceded on behalf of saints on earth. The only time I've ever seen saints in heaven ask for anything is that God kill everybody. In Revelation 5, he looked under the throne and there were all the souls of those who'd been slain for the name and they said, how long, O Lord, till you vindicate our blood? The only time I've seen dead saints interceding, they're interceding for wrath. Now, it's possible that, I mean, in concept, could a dead believer in heaven ask God? There's just, the Bible doesn't even go there. You know what I mean? And, and they've elevated Mary to the point of calling her the co-redemptrix. Which again, I mean, these are other things. As I was thinking about Christ alone, I, I spent probably the first two days, am I going to deal with the whole co-redemptrix thing? Part of the problem with the co-redemptrix, it's not official canon law yet. It's put, see, Catholicism does things backwards. They don't make it canon law, then do it. It gets into practice and tradition long enough, and eventually the tradition becomes canon law. Mary's co-redemptrix is part of much Catholic practice, but it is not yet canon law. So you can't say, out of the Vatican, Mary's been titled the co-redemptrix. She hasn't been yet. In many Catholic churches, that term's been used, and high ups in the Catholic church have used that term, but you can't say it's the law of the land of Catholicism because it's not yet. So I didn't go after that. Um, but that's, that's another point. Yeah, no, go. One um, really significant thing that happened to me was the day before my grandmother died, she was a devout Catholic, and she said to me, um, just believe in Jesus, that's all you have to worry about. And she, I said, well, I thought she was kind of off a little bit. And I said, I'll come and see you tomorrow. And she said, no, I won't be here. And she just repeated, um, just remember, you just have to pray to Jesus. Right. And then she died at 6 o'clock the next day. Wow. And that was before I was a believer. So that was always in the back of my head why she would say that. And when I became a believer, it became clear. And then that's, and I want to end on this, this note again. I've, I've been trying to deal with official Catholic doctrine out of the Vatican. I'm dealing with the, you know, they've got their own web domain, VA, Vatican, you know. And I've been dealing with, with that. Your street corner Catholic in America may not believe a third of what I've said. And, 
So I would, as strongly as I'm trying to speak against on the books official Catholic catechism doctrine, which I disagree with, I want to do it agreeably. I don't want to be a jerk, but I disagree with. And I, I, I would not assume the Catholic that you meet is aware of all this, believes all this, will defend all this. Ask them questions, get to know them. I, I'll just close with, with testimony of my dad coming to faith. My dad was a very, very, very devout nominal Catholic. <laughs> he had a nominal version of Catholicism. He went to church and he, he, you know, he did, did the Mass. And he did it very religiously, but as, when I became a believer and I started talking about the things I, I believed, he, he either was ignorant of or didn't believe in the Immaculate Conception, Mary's co-redemptrix. Um, the best way I could describe my dad was he was a man who had his faith in the church that had his faith in Jesus. He was a man trusting a church that trusted Jesus. And he was just, as an attorney, look, the priest has studied all this stuff. The priest deals with him. The priest tells him, I'm okay. Sort of like Israel with Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain. Moses deals with God for us. Moses tells us what to do, and we're good. And that's where he was at. And my dad came to faith days before he died. And I remember... Um, as he, uh, my dad uh, was a quadriplegic, got in a ski accident and um, had an ulcer that he couldn't feel. This ulcer eventually perforated, stomach acid leaked, attacked his pancreas. My dad died technically of necreatic pancreatitis. Um, and so at the end, they opened him back up after doing the ulcer surgery and went, uh-oh, because his pancreas had liquefied. <laughs> the stomach acid had basically eaten the pancreas. You don't go very far like that. So the doctors basically said he's gonna, his blood pressure is going to lower and lower. He's going to go into a coma. He's going to die. And, and so we know basically we got four or five more hours of him being conscious before that happens. So I'm talking to him and um, and praying and reading the Bible. And that was the thing in God's grace, the thing I kept sort of telling my dad, and he affirmed was, Dad, you're going to face God. The church will not be there. That You have an advocate who will be there, Jesus Christ. And what matters is that you've done business with him. The, the priest will not be there in the throne room. He, he's not sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus and Jesus alone is. So this truth that Jesus is our mediator, Jesus is our high priest, Jesus is the one through whom we approach God is crucial because, you know, when you face God, there's only one mediator between God and man. And what matters is you, you, you've trusted in him, <laughs> not the people who've trusted in him, and not the people, there is no further go-betweens. And, you know, I, I believe my dad had that clear. And he, he, I mean, there wasn't much time in his life to bear much fruit, but I have every reason to hope and believe that, that this, was a, this was something he shifted and put his faith in. Um, but but that's, that distinction of putting your faith in the church that puts his, it's one of the reasons why, if you wonder why I take as long preaching as I do, I feel the need to show my math. It doesn't, shouldn't matter to you what I think if I don't tell you why I think it, because I'm not a pope, I'm not an authority. I want to persuade, here's why I think this. And so, because what matters is you as a priest dealing with God's word are accountable for how you read God's word. And you can't say when you get to judgment, well, Pastor Jeremy told me, because <laughs> I won't be there. Um, and so you are accountable for what you do with God's word. And you have a mediator and a priest in Jesus Christ, or you have none at all. Um, I, I won't be there, and, and Al won't be there, and Wendell won't be there for you. But Jesus will. And so that's, that's precisely we've got to clear the floor of, of competitors and put Christ back in the centerpiece, which Rome's been slowly crowding him out. He's still there. If you can see past Mary, and if you can see past the crowd of the saints, and you can see past purgatory, he's there. Um, but we're saying Christ alone. And on that note, let me close in prayer and we'll break. Lord, we thank you for this, um, this time. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would help us all to keep our eyes fixed firmly on the author 
perfecter of our faith, that we would um, be putting our trust in Christ and in him alone and in no other, no human man or woman, no church, but that Christ would be our sacrifice, Christ would be our intercessor and our savior. And Lord God, we just rejoice in, in who you have sent to save us, the Lord Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice is sufficient, his priesthood is unique, that even now he is interceding on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.